You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is actor, producer, activist, Noah Tishby, author of the book, Israel, a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth. What's the number one thing people misunderstand about Israel? <laughs> oh, God, how long do we have? Um, a, a lot, a lot. I think one of the things that I found so disturbing and one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book and do the work that I do is because people have started to paint Israel as the big bad wolf of the entire universe. And I, as a, as a liberal, as somebody that's been in the entertainment industry my, my entire life, as somebody that's been involved, my family's been involved in the establishment of the country for many generations, I was highly um, bothered by that. So I don't know if there's one thing, but um, I'll give you, you know, ethnic cleansing, <laughs> uh, genocide country, uh, apartheid state. I'll give you all of those as, as one of those things that a lot of people um, perceive as truths, which are not at all. Okay, we're, let's we're start jumping. With those. We're literally jumping right in, are we? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like your audience have no idea who I am, but uh, well, let's you go. Know, I, thought, I thought about that, but uh, this is the way we're doing it. So, uh, speak to genocide. <laughs> this is okay. The the answer to that is so simple that it's almost comical because if you say that, that to to do ethnic cleansing, to do to create genocide, you have to have numbers that actually are reduced. Right. And if you look at the numbers at the establishment of the state in 1948, there were about 150,000 um, Arab, Israeli, Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel. Now there's 2.1 million. So if you think of it as like a genocide, it's literally the worst genocide in the history of the world. That is that is one of the things that infuriates me the most, because there's there's no it's almost it's almost upsetting to even start with this because of how not true this is and how much I've had to fight against this. And the thing is that this is more, it's more, these things are more than just misunderstanding. They're actual national security for America's 
best ally in the region, for the single consistent democracy in the entire Middle East, for the only country that shares our values, the only country that's not a perfect country. There are no such thing as a perfect country. But what's been happening specifically, sadly, around uh, what I call polite circles is this demonization of one state, and that state just happens to be Jewish. It's also my home homeland. So I, um, I took it personally. I took it very personally. And, you know, look, we're, we're both, both based in L.A., and there's a story that I tell in my book that's kind of like the funny version of it, right? The funny version of, like, Israel's an ethnic cleansing state, okay? And the funny version is um, I was, it was just when I moved to L.A., I was in th- my early 20s, I was you know, roaming around kind of like in the group. Uh, Okay, this is going to come up later. I don't want to have to get your exact age, even though someone could just look it up at Wikipedia. But (laughs) how many years ago did you move to the U.S.? Over 20 years ago. Over 20 years ago. Started coming back and forth. Um, Okay. And I, there was this girl that we were hanging out with, and she was already famous. She was already very well known. Um, she, she turned, she ended up being one of the most famous actresses in the world. Every single one of the audience knows who she is. If you're between the ages of 12 and 90, you know, you know who she is. She was lovely. And she came up to me one day and she asked me, she's like, oh, so I heard you're from Israel. And I said, yeah, I am. And she goes, so how does your family feel about you? And I was like, what? <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? And she goes, you know, that you're modern and everything, that you don't wear all the headgear. And that was when asking me about misunderstanding, that was the first time that I realized that people have no idea about what Israel is. Because this here was this woman who is young, well-educated, successful, well-meaning, lovely, and she thinks Israel is Afghanistan, like legit. So that was probably the first time that I encountered that. And from then on, it was just over and over. Literally every week I would hear somebody say something that is not true, I would have to jump in and jump in again, jump in again, until uh, here we are. That's what I do. Okay. So you've been here 20 years. So you've seen the rise of the BDS movement. You've seen this wave, certainly on the left, of support of Palestinians. What do you think is going on here? First of all, let me just make one thing clear. I'm pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian. So this trying to create this it's false equivalency or, or trying to create this this it's not they're not it's not mutually uh, it's not mutually exclusive right so you don't have to be either pro-israeli or pro-palestinian there's not a single person that i know in israel that's against palestinians okay there are people on the fringe right that are against palestinians but that's the slight that's not a majority by any stretch of the imagination right so first of all it's not either or the way that it's perceived in those polite circles is that you're either pro-Israel or you're pro-Palestine. That is not true. The, the question is, the question what to be done is not a question that I can obviously answer in a podcast, but what's been going on in the past since, since we, we've identified this since 2001. So this kind of originated at the Durban conference for against racism, which turned out to be so anti-Semitic that the U.S. and Israel pulled out. That was when the language of trying to brand Israel an apartheid state was originated. And this is where BDS kind of took their language from. So the BDS movement, which is the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, is trying to portray Israel as South Africa. So if you, which is, it's, 
it's it's offensive to South African. It's offensive to actual apartheid warriors, anti-apartheid warriors. So BDS movement is trying to create um, academic, financial, uh, intellectual boycott on the state of Israel completely. They're trying to um, turn it into pariah state, and they're trying to, at the end of the day, destroy Israel. So they're trying to dismantle the only democracy in the Middle East. And this is one of those things that I'm not, it's not hyperbole and I'm not making this up. This is what their leaders are saying. They're not afraid of it. They're not ashamed of it. It's all out there. It's on videos on, on the internet for everyone to see. But what they do and what they've done throughout the years is they cloaked it in a very kind of sophisticated um, language. So they'll show up, for example, on college campus, okay? They'll set a table on college campus. And on the table, they'll talk about justice and freedom, right? They're not going to sit at the table and say, we are here to destroy democracy. Please sign up, all right? So they're literally trying to hide what it is that they are about. But this is what they are about. Now, BDS movement is against peace. Like, BDS movement was against the Abraham Accord. How... There's no, there is no, there's not going to be peace, lasting peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians if there's going to be less collaboration and cooperation. There needs to be more than that. There needs to be, BDS was against the Abraham Accord, okay? Okay, so, give, us a yeah. give us a little bit of the history of BDS. Huh. So, well, let me, let me give you first the history of boycotting Jewish goods, okay? So boycotting Jewishness. This is why we say BDS is an anti-Semitic movement. It's not about... Um, it's not a political movement. It's an anti-Semitic movement. It's not a progressive movement. It's a hate group, basically. So the origination of boycotting Jewish goods started in with the first, this was the first decision that the Arab League made when they were established before the establishment of the State of Israel. So it was either 1945 or 1946. They um, had their first decision was to boycott Jewish goods. Okay. Now, why I say, the reason I say, so this is the origination of BDS concept. So this is, there's an, there was um, uh, an incarnation of this throughout the years. So there was the Arab boycott in the 70s that we didn't have Pepsi in Israel because of the Arab boycott. And now, again, BDS trying to boycott, to boycott Israel, to boycott Jewish goods. Now, the thing about BDS that people in the, in the West and on the left don't understand is that it's a movement that hurts Palestinians. So the Palestinians, this is not, it's not a grassroots movement of the, in the, in, like that's like actually coming from the West Bank. The people on the West Bank want more opportunities. They want more um, jobs. They want to be able to eat ice cream the way that, the, you know, I'm referring to Ben and Jerry's boycotting, boycotting Israel. So this is, this is a movement that's actually damaging Palestinians. I wrote in my book, I quoted this letter of a, of a, a guy, a Palestinian guy who was working at the Soda Stream factory in the West Bank. And BDS went after the Soda Stream factory and the workers there, there were about 1,500 workers there, um, but 800 of them were Palestinians. And he wrote this letter to Haaretz and he said, don't close the factory. I'm working here with Israelis and Palestinians and Ethiopians and Russians and we're all working together. I get paid three times more. I get benefits. What are you doing? Stop this. This is what's happening. And it's BDS on campus, and it's these well-intentioned justice warriors that don't understand what it is that they're supporting, and they don't understand that it's actually damaging the Palestinian people. Okay. You know, you mentioned Ben and Jerry's, and we talk about the woke left 
being pro-Palestinian. I didn't mention that word yet. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, that's my new <laughs> word. What do you think is the generation of this? Why is this happening? Because it didn't happen prior to the last 20 or so years. This is, again, um, my chapter in the book about BDS is the chapter that the legal department at Simon & Schuster was most concerned about. And they went through every single one of these words with like, you know, fine, 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 fine. I kind of like went through this very thoroughly because I talk about the origin and the funding of BDS and who's behind it. And I'm quoting two congressional hearings that happened on the subject of BDS. And there needs to be investigation about the sources of funding and who's behind it. Let me just say that it's not happening by accident. It's by design. There's a nefarious intent to destroy the state of Israel. And I believe the FBI needs to actually open an investigation against them. And also the Department of Education should not allow them on campuses. Probably the IRS should look into their funding as well. Okay, let me use a specific example. Um, there was this I'm being I'm being again careful just because it's all in my book worded very carefully, but it's let, let me let me put it there. No, nobody came after me because there was nothing there that was not the truth. Okay, let me use a specific example. There's this highly reviewed mm -hmm. series on Amazon Prime called Transparent. And it's got a Jewish underpinning, and a lot of people involved in the show are Jewish. And then one of the later seasons, they go to Israel, and they make a big point of going to Palestinian areas and how the Palestinians were just peaceful people, and they were being mistreated by Israel. What is the genesis of this sentiment by left-leaning liberal Jews? Why do you think this is, is suddenly happening? First of all, everybody loves a, a, like a, the perceived underdog, right? When you look through history, and I'm coming, I'm talking as as a liberal Israeli, right, and a, and a liberal liberal Jew in my in my opinions and my kind of like leaning. It's very confronting to look at the history of the conflict and to realize black on top of white, how many times like written down, right? How many times there were peace offerings to the Palestinian leadership and how many times they were turned down from literally 1922 onwards. So when you look at that and you think to yourself, what do they want? It's a very confronting feeling when you know history well to realize that as a political movement, the Palestinian people need to figure it, figure out what it is that they're after. Because every single action that they have taken throughout the years was rejectionism, was a no to whatever was offered. And when you see people like Bella Hadid, right, bless her heart, chanting in demonstrations, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that is a call <laughs> for ethnic cleansing of the Jewish people from their ancestral land. That's what that is, because there's a country between the river, the Jordan River, and the sea, the sea of, you know, the, the Mediterranean Sea. So it's a very confronting feeling as someone who's more on the liberal side to look at that and go, oh my God, what do we have to work with? What do they want? What do they want? However, the left eats it up in America when somebody comes over and use 
fake intersectionality, perceived Jews as white people, and say, see, the poor Palestinians, they're just like the blacks. They're just like, you know, it's, it's white on brown oppression. It's kind of easy to believe that in America if you don't know the facts. And it's a very, and I'm saying this so lightly because the, even, even the notion of intersectionality in Israel is wrong. Can you define intersectionality, please? Well, yeah, the, the, sure. So intersectionality in the context of perceiving everything to the prism, or through the prism of, of skin color, right? And ethnicity. So there's a, uh, an attempt to paint Israel as this white nation that's oppressing brown people. And all you need to do is go to Israel and see that that's not the case. Because right now in Israel, only 31% are defining themselves of Eastern European descent. The rest are of the region. So either Jewish of, you know, Jews of, of North African descent or Palestinian, Arab, Israeli, whatever it is. That's, it's not a white country. The majority of American Jews are of European descent. But that's not the case in Israel. So there's no, th this is something that's based on, that isn't based in reality, but it, because of the world that we live in today, because of this trying to, you know, you, you said woke, I don't want to even use that word that much, but because of, be that people are trying to be holier than the Pope and they, the, the perceived underdog is not the underdog. It's just not the case. And again, I'm not saying this, I don't want people to get upset. I'm not saying that Israel is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm trying to pull us back from the brink of Israel shouldn't exist. Because that's, the thing is this, right? The people don't understand that Israel is the only country in the world that her existence is being questioned. It's the only country. It's the only country in the world that has its own Wikipedia entry, the legitimacy of the state of Israel. No other country has that. Okay, let's start with that concept. You and me both know that the goal of the Palestinians and the other people in the area is for Israel literally not to exist. Why? And Howard Stern yes, has talked about that too. Can you too. say that? Yeah, say that again. That's the thing. But a lot of people don't actually get that. Well, the, the this goal is my of a lot this of countries my... in the region, and a lot of—I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying all the Palestinian people. I'm, I'm just saying the goal is to throw the Jews into the sea and see Israel cease to exist. That's what we're dealing with here. Okay, you and me know that. How come that concept gets no traction? It's a great question. And I, I, I wish I had the answer to it. The only thing that I can think of, right, when again, I've done a deep dive on this for like decades, okay? Um, we all carry around subconscious biases when it comes to different ethnicities and different races and different, the, the other, right? And people carry around subconscious biases around Jewish people. They just do, right? I always joke, I'm like, you know, <laughs> the Jews have all the hmm, and the Jews have all the hmm, and the, you know, when I say cabal, you say, people just carry around these subconscious biases around the Jewish people. And they don't necessarily know that they carry them. But when they hear something about Israel, it falls smack into that subconscious bias. And if they don't stop and be like, wait, is that true or is that automatic? Then they believe it. And a lot of people's opinion about Israel is based on feelings, not on facts. And it's, it's very frustrating. And again, by the way, just so you know, I was born and raised in Israel, so I was not raised with anti-Semitism at all. Like, I was raised with zero anti-Semitism. I didn't even know that that's still a thing, right? 
but I came here and I'm like, whoa, that's, that's very much a thing. Okay. One thing you do very well in your book is you talk about the history of the land. Who was there? Uh, who owned the land? Why don't you give us a short version of that? Well, the short version of this, and I'm going to say something that's again going to be very confronting when I say this to people. You just look at their eyes and they go, bzz, bzz. there's just like a, a disconnect. Okay. There has never, in the history of humanity as we know it, has been a Palestine. There's never been a Palestine. I know, I know. <laughs> There's never been a pa Not that there shouldn't be, but there just never has been. So I go quickly through the history of the land from the time we know it, right? From like, to, you know, whatever. Biblical time is more or less where we, you know, can have writing. Um, and that piece of land went through, it was, it was, quote unquote own because the land can't be owned, but it was it was a sovereign Jewish state in the biblical era. And from then on, two thousand over two thousand years ago, it just swapped hands from one hand to the next to the next, from the Mamluks to the Asherites to the this, there were the the caliphate was was there for the the, the crusaders came and took it, the and then four hundred years of the Ottoman Empire and a few years of the British Empire. So it was never anything other than a Jewish state. Okay? And in 74 AD, after the great Roman-Jewish War, the Romans took over and gave the land the name Palestinia in order to disconnect the Jews from their homeland, from Judea, essentially. And that's where Palestine comes from, from the Romans. <laughs> I know this is something that is, it's something that is very difficult to talk about because a lot of people are... They get, this is upsetting and confronting and triggering to them. But this is where the concept Palestine was in reference of a geographical location. Not a country, not a state, not a nation, not a people. Now it's different, but it never was. So there were the Jews of Palestine and the Arabs of Palestine and the Christians of Palestine, right? So it was never a peoplehood up until 1964, where the PLO kind of created it to be so. And, and great, every people deserve self-governance and self-determination. But historically, that land was only ever Jewish. And when we hear calls today in America and around the world for the Jews to go back to where you came from, and you ask people, where, where's that? And they go, we'll go back to Europe. It's very upsetting because <laughs> we know how that ended. And the Jewish people are its own ethnic group. It's not a religion. It's an ethno-religion that is originated in Judea. So it's an, it's an indigenous group of people that has a religion and traditions that are connected to a land. I mean, think about it. Every single Jewish person that's listening to this right now, Passover is about moving to a land. Shavuot is about the land, you know, the, the um, taking the bikurim from the ground, whatever was, was grown. Sukkot is about going to the land. It's all about, it's indigenous, it's an indigenous tradition. And for people to now say, you're colonialists on your land, it's very confronting. Because as a people, every generation, we hear something like this. This is why anti-Semitism is such a tricky thing, Right? It changes and morphs, it adapts, just like it sounds differently, different in every generation. And now, this is what it is. 
So you swap the word Jew with the word Zionist, and it's a blood libel. (laughs) And you tell me, you look me straight in the eye, and you tell me that the Israelis, the Zionists are killing Palestinian people, Palestinian children. And I'm like, this is the blood liable from the, you know, the crusaders. It's the same. So this is what we're dealing with. And I'm on the front line of this. This is what I deal with every single day. It's hard when you're talking to people, when, when people don't understand that, that, that it's, this is, uh, it's hate. It's just hate speech. That's all it is. This is not political. This is not, um, it's not about any political personality that you like and you don't like. Like, this is what you're dealing with. You're dealing with subconscious bias about the Jewish people that is then affecting your opinion. And it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous for, for the state of Israel. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, you uh, go through what happens in 1948 where the United Nations gives uh, the Jews their land to Israel. But you also talk about their offer to the Palestinians, which is never accepted. Yes. So in 1947, there was a UN resolution, um, 181, which was the resolution to divide the land between the Jews and the Arabs. They were called the Arabs at the time because, again, there was no Palestinian identity as we know it today. Um, the Jews said yes, the Arabs said no. 
And uh, the day after the night of the declaration of the state of Israel, they started a war. And it wasn't a surprise because they said they're going to start a war. And they said that they're going to wipe the Jews off the map and kill all the Jews. Now, remind you, this was three years after the Holocaust. So the Jewish people were in no mood to be slaughtered again. So this was literally either we establish a land or we all die again. Whatever, whoever is left is going to die. Um, this was a war in 1948 that Israel did not want. It was a war that Israel did not start. And it was a war that Israel won. Yet here we are in 2023 and we're still litigating that war. So despite the fact that there were a lot of refugee, Palestinian refugees, there were between 700 and 750,000 refugees at the time. They were not resettled in other countries. They were kept in refugee camps and they were told, wait up, you can return. You'll be able to return soon. Now I talk in my, in my book about the house that my family had at Teplitz in Czechoslovakia at the time. This is, it's not just a ridiculous concept because now we're three, four generations later. So now there's millions of people that are considered Palestinian refugees that are stuck in limbo. And this is something that's horrible for the Palestinian people. That's something that should not have happened to them, right? But nobody, nobody would tell our family that was kicked out of here and there and everywhere, oh, wait, you'll just be, you'll be able to return. But there were nations that actually told this to the Palestinian people and perpetuated this um, state of victimhood, which is now a real problem. But okay. it's, it's a problem that's laid at the doorstep of Israel, basically. Okay. Ari Shavit, a well-respected journalist who had a downfall mm-hmm. a couple of years ago because of sexual peccadillo, um, he wrote a book called My Promised Land, The Triumph and yep. Tragedy of Israel. And if you read the book, there were Palestinians that had land that now no longer have that land. What would your response be to that? I, it's obviously horrible. There's no question. Look, at the fog of war, things happen that are terrible. They do. And I don't doubt that there were Palestinians that were kicked out. And I don't doubt that there were Palestinians that lost property. I don't doubt that this happened on the Jewish side as well. So around the same time, from every single Arab country, there was a, an, an equivalent Nakba, right, of all the, the neighboring Arab countries kicking out their Jewish residents to the tune of 800 to 850,000 people. And they lost everything that they had. So I have friends, from my, friend, my friend Zohar from Fez, Morocco, kicked out, out left everything there, houses, property, everything, and kicked out. I'm not saying, there's no excusing any of this, but that's what happens. And right now, what people are doing is we're going to take this against Israel and we're going to legitimize its existence. And that is something that I'm just not willing to accept. Okay. So, you go a little bit deeper to the point you just made about the Palestinians and the refugee problem, which has exploded exponentially over generations? So, after the War of Independence, after 1948, 
there was a, an agency established in the United Nations called UNRWA, which is an agency for Palestinian refugees. Okay? Until this day, it's the single, there's, there's and one agency in the UN for Palestinian refugees and another agency in the UN for every single other refugee from every other country in the world. So all the other refugees are under one agency and the Palestinian people have their own agency. Throughout the years, they tried to dismantle that agency because they found out that it's corrupt. It teaches um, uh, in the schools, in the school, in, in school books, it teaches uh, about terrorism and about becoming shaheeds and all that. They were unable to dismantle that particular agency. I forgot the exact number today, but it's over 5 million people. So in UNRWA, it's the only agency in which you are automatically second generation, third generation, you're registered as a, as a refugee unless you asked to be removed from that agency. Okay? So it's the only agency like that. Usually in the other, I think UNCHAR is the other agency, you have to, you're, you're being removed. You're not, if you're second generation in another country, you're not considered a refugee anymore. Not like that with UNRWA. So essentially from 750, let's say, thousand refugees, Palestinian refugees of 1948, they're now, I think the number is 5.9 million, but I'm not entirely sure. 5.9, let's say, million refugees that are, quote unquote, the Palestinian refugee problem. And when you read material by BDS, when you read about those organizations, they use that number as if that number is the truth. There were 5.9 million people kicked out of, you know, Palestinian territories when Israel was established. So they used this number and I'm, that number is wrong to begin with. Because how would you inherit a refugee status? What if you are already settled in another country? What if your children are already settled in another country? Okay, so it's a highly corrupt body. There's been, you know, it's a political football in, in America, but I definitely agree that the funding for UNRWA needs to be looked at very carefully because it does some good things, but it does some horrible things. And again, it's perpetuating this problem that is not helping the Palestinian people. So of this approximately 5.9 million Palestinians, where exactly are they now? It's a good question. There, a lot of them are, they're either in Jordan, Lebanon, some of them are around the world. You know, the other problem is, for example, in Lebanon, they're not allowed to in, uh, integrate into society. So they're still in refugee camps. So the, the notion in the UN, in the United Nations at the time, including this guy, Ralph Bunch, who's an amazing person who I've kind of went down a rabbit hole on, on him, who was a, a black diplomat who helped the creation of, of the state of Israel um, on behalf of the United on behalf of the United States at the time, the notion was that they're going to be fine because that's the same people and it's the same culture and they're going to be integrated in other society. And again, there was no Palestinian identity as we know it today, right? But they were wrong because the Jordanians put them in in refugee camps and the Lebanese put them in refugee camps and they forbade them from actually participating in the country and integrating into the country. So. This is, if you're a second or third generation in a refugee camp, you are pissed, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. So, how come the people who are generations removed, their lives are not being reestablished and they're living like refugees? Because those countries don't allow it. 
Those countries don't allow it. And here's the other thing, again, the question as to why is there no Palestinian state should be asked of the Palestinians as well. Why is there no Palestinian state yet? It's been offered many times. Why is there no Palestine? Okay, let's uh, move to a slightly different topic. Please define Zionism. Oh, (laughs) what a great question. So when people hear the word Zionism, they often get annoyed (laughs) because the word Zionism was um, uh, turned into a bit of a curse word. So Zionism in its simplest form is the Jewish people's right to have a state. That's really what it is. So in a little bit more of a a sophisticated way, it's the Jewish people's right for self-determination and self-governance in some parts of their ancestral land in a Jewish, not an exclusively Jewish state. So Zionism was never about having an exclusively Jewish state. Ever, 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 ever. It's just about the Jewish people's right to have a state. And I am a proud Zionist. I think, listen, Joe Biden is a proud Zionist as well. Um, And I think that if you are a person who believes in human rights, then you should be a Zionist. And again, Zionism is not against Palestinian self-determination. Zionism is not an exclusivity of Jews in the land. Zionism is about the Jews being allowed to own the state. Okay, how about people, Roger Waters being the prime example, who say... Uh, I am not anti-Semitic. I am just against Israel's policy. <laughs> First of all, I kind of don't even want to give Roger water. I know that you're, you know, it's 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 the music uh, the music spot here, but he's Germany just canceled his performance because he's so anti-Semitic. Like he's he's his band came out against him because he's so anti-Semitic. He's also always on the wrong side of history. Like he's supporting Putin. Like, he, you know, he really knows how to pick him. So it's kind of like if, if Roger Waters is against something, we should all support that because that's the right, the right thing to do. Look, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are the same. And what do I mean by that? You can be against the Israeli government's policies, against the Israeli government, against the Israeli prime minister. You can be against Israel's policies in the West Bank or in Tel Aviv. Right. But if you're against Israel's right to exist, that goes into a different direction, because if you are against a lot of other countries' right to exist, if you don't like borders, that's fine. You're not anti-Semitic. But if you're against one country's right to exist and that country happens to be Jewish, there is a name for that. Right. So that, to me, is the difference. The difference is not about being upset about Israeli government. God knows I'm upset about Israeli government policies for years as I am in America, right? I'm, I, nobody, I always give this example, right? Nobody likes, whether you're left, right, or center, whatever, nobody likes the American policy of kids in cages, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody. But nobody's also talking about dismantling America. And that's where the line crosses, in my opinion, between being against Israeli policies and being against Israel's right to exist. And that's where Roger Waters is. He's against Israel's right to exist. He's anti-Semitic. He is full of blood libel. He's full of... uh, Are we allowed to curse on your podcast? Of course. Okay, guys. Full of shit. He really is. Like in a massive kind of way. He's a grumpy old man who's on the wrong side of history. and, And I'm glad that a lot of people are not just not giving him the time of day anymore. He's just the energizer bunny of anti semites Okay, but there's also the issue of Roger Waters and people who agree with him who say 
people should not play concerts in Israel. Okay. We see, granted, Roger Waters is an internationally famous person, but how come we see one side so large and we see the other side defending Israel or the right, Israel's right to exist so small? Because it's not a cool cause anymore. It's not a cool cause. Israel is not perceived as the underdog. Israel is a superpower, a technological superpower. It's a strong military. It's, you know, if there's one, one of the best brands in the world would be Mossad, right? You just say Mossad to somebody and like, oh my God, right? So Israel is not perceived as the underdog. And people forget that it's literally under threat every single day. There were 14 people that were murdered in Israel since the beginning of the year. We're, it's three months in. Just point blank, just, just murdered. So people, Iran is running to create a nuclear bomb in order to dismantle, destroy Israel. So the, the people forget that Israel, as powerful as it is, is still constantly under threat. And it's just not a cool cause. You know, I've been working in, in Hollywood for so many years. And every time I would try to get some celebrity to speak publicly for the state of Israel, I get a no, no, no. Like, we love Israel. We get it. I'll get phone calls. We're like, oh, my God, we support Israel. Israel is such a great state. I've been there. It's amazing. It's so liberal. It's so great. Would you say something publicly? No. So, you know, this is, it's just not a popular cause anymore. It used to be because people was, if they were, it was after the Holocaust and after the wars and after when it was just, people try to overtly destroy it so many times. There was this, like, Jewish um, heroism that came out of the destruction of the Holocaust but it's not, not the case anymore. It's not the case anymore. And I'm just concerned because we don't want it to get too far. It can be very, it can be very dangerous. These things are slippery slopes. As a Jewish person, right, we, we get extraordinarily triggered because we carry around an epigenetic fear of being rounded up. And I know you know what I'm talking about. I'm a, are you of course. Doing? Yeah, right, of course. I know you know what I'm talking about. And I know every single Jewish person knows exactly what I'm talking about. And every person who's not Jewish that's listening right now, please consider this to be the truth. Every one of your Jewish friends have an epigenetic fear of being slaughtered. So we have generational Okay, wait, trauma. wait, wait. Not everybody yes. understands that term, epigenetic. Let me explain it. Okay, let me explain it. So we have, people do understand gen gen um, generational trauma. So we have generational trauma in our DNA that's every single generation, there's been some sort of a disaster that has befallen the Jewish people for thousands of years, right? Epigenetics, epi is above, genetics is genetics, and epigenetic is the memory, basically, that goes down in our genetic memory that is above the gen, like it's memories and generational memories, and I'm not going to get into it that much because it's, go, go, go dig about it, it's fascinating. But when I, when I, Went down the rabbit hole of epigeneticism, I was floored because nobody talked about the Jewish as aspect of it. And I, it was so obvious to me that we carry this around. There, I'm sitting around LA with my friends right now that are well-to-do and successful and have families. And we're sitting down and having conversations about taking down the mezuzahs at your doorstep, at your door, front, like at the front, at the front of the house, the side of, the, of your doors. And where are we going to go? And I'm stopping them. We're literally sitting at a bar on Doheny. And I'm stopping everybody. I'm like, do you see what we're doing? And they're like, what? I'm like, we're talking about escaping again. And this is happening for the Jewish people. If there's no, we, we have this thing of we have to run. We need to run because every few years we get 
slaughtered. So this is bringing it all up right now. What's happening right now between Kanye West and Kyrie Irving and the hate that, that's against Israel, this is bringing up generational stress for all of us. And again, because the Jews are not perceived as the underdog in the world, because Jews are not underrepresented, they're actually overrepresented in a lot of areas, people don't think that the Jewish people are under distress. And they're like, well, you're white passing, you should be fine. And I'm like, yeah, you're white passing, but... I'm walking around with a Star of David, and that's considered to be risky. So being Jewish right now in America is kind of like being gay in the 60s. It's don't ask, don't tell. If you can pass as not Jewish, then you're fine. But if you're visibly Jewish in New York City, you get beaten up on the streets. That's the world we live in right now. So okay, this is... this. Let's go back to Israel for a second. So again, if anybody's hearing this right now and they're not Jewish, like all the non-Jewish, just trust us right there. This is what's happening. Call your Jewish friend, ask them how they're doing. Let's talk about the settlements because there are a lot of liberal Jews who support Israel and they feel the settlements are just one step too much. They'll say as we're speaking right now, there's big issues with the government and the settlements. Describe the history and your take on what's going on. So my take is pretty clear from my book. Again, I don't want to get into too into the weeds about this, but the settlements are basically um, the uh, new uh, kind of like settlements that were established in the West Bank and Gaza when Israel uh, won the war of 67. Again, the war that she didn't start nor wanted, but won. Um, uh, they were created initially in order to create some uh, kind of physical buffer zone and protection. And they turned into something that's more of a religious kind of fervor because they sit on a land that's historically indigenously Jewish. There's Hebron, which is the barrier of the fathers and mothers. So there's, it's, it's a land that's indigenously uh, Jewish land. Um, it's pretty clear what I think about the settlements uh, from my book. I don't think they're helping. But I also want to caution people about them as well, because I think that to some extent there are a red herring within the debate about the, a peace, let's say, two-state solution, right? Which arguably, I'm not even sure if it's viable anymore, but that is arguably the best solution that we can imagine right now. Hopefully we can imagine something else, but this is what we can imagine right now. Um, there's always a debate about the settlements, right? So it's like 2.9 million Palestinians and about 450,000 Jewish people in the West Bank. So what I like to propose and bring up all the time is... Why do we even talk about the settlements as something that has to be dismantled, right? I mean, there are 21% Arab Israelis in living in Israel having the same rights. Why wouldn't they be some Jewish people living in a Palestinian state, right? Why do they have to be dismantled? And this is obviously a rhetorical question because the answer to anybody who lives in the region or has been to the region and knows anything about the region, the answer is very clear. And the answer is because they'll be slaughtered within two and a half seconds. But that is something that I, I always like to bring up. That's why I, I, I don't support that operation, the Mifalait Yeshvut. I don't think it's helpful. But I also think that to some extent, sometimes it's a red herring. If there was willingness to create a Palestinian state on behalf of the Palestinian leadership, the settlements would have been, they would have figured out what to do. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, let's talk about you specifically. So you have a long history as an actress and as a producer, so when we're talking about Israeli... And as a singer as it, well, as an artist. Did you okay, know okay. Like, are we going to talk about that? Yes, like, we are. A long but, time. But, but, but we're going... I got, I got it in my mind. Don't worry about it. Great. We're getting there. So how much of your time is spent on activism at this point in time? Whether it be All speaking, right. writing, posting on social media. Give me a, an understanding of that. All of it. All of it. Well, that would so beg the I, question of yeah. how do you have time to be an actress, a singer, a producer? I don't know. All of it is on all of it. That's that's the thing. I So I started acting when I was around eight years old. Um, got my first scholarship when I was 14 years old. I've been, I had, I remember the first moment that I was on stage that I'm like, I had this magic of, you know, the zone that they talk about and everything goes quiet. And I just knew that it's my spot. Right. Um, and I've been extraordinarily passionate about this and I did well in some areas and great in other areas, specifically producing, which, which worked out really well, but I've always wanted to communicate. That was my biggest thing. I just needed to communicate in various ways. And it just, it kept changing throughout my life. And when I sat down to read, to write my book in 2019, um, it became very clear to me that this is what I'm going to be doing from now on. And not just that, it became very clear that this was, I was just like, I sat down, I started writing. I'm like, oh my God, that's why I went through every, like everything that I went through had led me to this. 
Like this is not, you know, and it was incredible how everything, everything changed for me from that minute onwards. And I, <laughs> I, I have, I signed with a new agency last year and I told them very specifically that I'm not interested in going to auditions and I'm not, I don't, I don't want to do anything that doesn't have meaning anymore. So I feel like, I feel like everything that I did led me to, led me to this, led me to be able to be a spokesperson on behalf of, you know, making the world a better place in my own kind of, in my own kind of way. And I just am so disinterested in acting. I'm never say never. Right. But it's just not something that I'm interested in. I advocacy and diplomacy and, and, and writing, um, is so much more interesting to me. <laughs> it just, okay. Just but we, we all need money to live. So how are you supporting yourself now? I do speaking engagements. I do. I, I'm. I'm. I'm good. I, I'm able to support myself through this work, and it's um, extraordinary. The book is doing great. I mean, the <laughs> who knew a book about Israel would do would do so well and get such great reviews from such amazing people? And it's it's still it, people are still responding to it. I knew that there's a constituency out there. I knew that there isn't a book about Israel that tells that story in a way that's fun, funny, easy to understand, relatable. I just knew that it doesn't exist. Also, it's the first book about Israel written by a woman, by the way. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Israel, yes. growing up in Israel. One very interesting thing is you talk about your service uh, being in the army and that uh, you did that service by being a performer. Can you tell us more about the obligation to serve and what varying people do? Yeah. So first of all, it's so it's mandatory to serve in the military in Israel. Obviously, if you really don't want to serve, they have a lot of people that you can you can get out of it if you really, really don't want to serve. But it's mandatory to serve. I actually think it's a great thing for a person to do at the age of 18, because you're in a system that's bigger than you and you got to do things that you don't necessarily like. And I don't think um, when I when I moved to America and I realized that people go to college and just get drunk, I'm like, ooh, yeah. That the difference between like an Israeli 19-year-old and an American 19-year-old is quite striking. So I wanted to sing in the military, sing and, and act. There is something in Israel called La Katzveit, which is a military performing troops, which is essentially a USO tour. <laughs> That's what it is. And you have to audition to get in. And it's like months of auditions, basically. And you audition with like sketch comedy and acting and singing and whatever, all of it. And I got in. I was very excited. It was my dream for years and years and years to do. And I did that for two and a half years. So it's basically, you do a USO tour, meaning you're on a bus, you come to base every morning, you get a note of where you're going that day. Remember, Israel is the size, country the size of New Jersey. So it's a very tiny, tiny country. So you can travel throughout the country basically in one day. And I got a chance to perform for soldiers every single day. And it's a very, <laughs> it's a, it gave me a couple of things. Um, first of all, it gives me great experience in terms of standing in front of an audience because it's like the toughest situations that you can imagine. So one day you're performing in front of like the prime minister and it's like a huge of thousands of people in a stadium or whatever. And the next day you're literally in a military kitchen in Hebron on a box of tomatoes and you get three soldiers in front of you and you have to entertain them. You're like, hey, okay, let's do this, right? So you get... As a performer, it's one of the best training grounds that you can imagine. So once you get out of that, and I've done this for two and a half years, I'm like, I can stand on any stage. You don't scare me. Like nothing is worse than seeing like, 
you know, being a girl, showing up in a guy's base that I haven't seen a girl in like three weeks and they can get rowdy and you need to calm them down and, and all of that. So that's the first thing he gave me. The second thing is I was, I, I was, I saw the country and I saw the military first, firsthand. So I saw every single military base that you can imagine and I saw how soldiers live and I saw the commitment and I saw the difference between like Air Force and like, you know, Yolkin, like the Green Forces. And it was, it was extraordinary. It's obviously gotten old. <laughs> so I was very excited to do it. I thought it's going to be very glamorous and fun. And instead you realize that, oh, I'm on the bus. We're five of us. And you're also the performer and the roadie. Like I know to build a stage and like, you know, like with the mic, the thing set up, the sound system and everything, carrying everything ourselves and, and all of that. Um, so it gets old. It's not, it's not as fun at the, be- at the beginning. It's fun, but afterwards it gets, it gets a little old, but it was an amazing, amazing experience. And it taught me a lot. The other Dude, thing what? though is that coming to America, people hear that I was in the Israeli military and they think I was so cool. And I was, I was a Mossad agent and it's quite disappointing for them when they realize I was just a singer. My son even laughs at me. As he was like, but you were a, but you were a singer in the military. I'm like, Shut up. Okay. You were a singer in the military. Was there anything in the back of your mind saying, I want to go down this path of the, in my ear quotes, USO, although this is audio, because I don't want to be in combat and I don't want to die? Oh, not even a little bit. I was like, I want to do this because this is what I want to do for a living. <laughs> it wasn't for a second, I don't want to be in combat. I didn't even think about that. It was very much, there is a movie in Israel called The Laka, The Troop, right? It's a movie from the 70s and it follows one of these troops, right? The USO tour. And we were all, we, it's like black and white. It's super old, but we all grew up on it. It's super famous. And I grew up on it. And I'm like, oh my God, that would be so cool. Like, that's what I want to do. So it was never because I wanted to avoid dying. <laughs> it was just because that's what I wanted to do. Okay, but speaking of dying, you talk about your mother's first husband. Now, I once I went to Columbia, this one's almost 10 years ago, and literally everybody I interacted with had had a family member assassinated. So to what degree do you feel that? Do you feel the military presence? Do you feel the evanescence of life or is it like living in New Jersey in America? Absolutely not. Not even a little bit. Not even close. You, there isn't, there's, there's not a single family in Israel that hasn't suffered a loss, a death, a wounded, an attack. There's not a single family. So one of the biggest differences that I saw that shocked me when I moved to the States was uh, Memorial Day. Because in Israel, and I talk about that in the book as well, Memorial Day is a devastating day. It's 24 hours. It starts in the morning and it ends in the, you know, it ends in the, in the, the next day. It starts in the evening and it ends the next evening, basically. And then we move straight to Independence Day. And it's a day of mourning the, the people who fell, the soldiers who fell and the terrorist victims who died. And... The, the, I can't describe the feeling because it's it's the the entire country is in mourning. There's there's sad music on the radio and the TV only plays um, documentaries about the fallen and every single person mourns in their own way and you go to ceremonies and it's just you cannot escape it. You cannot escape it because because everybody serves in the military 
and everybody has a friend or a family member, this or that, like everybody knows somebody. So this is something that really unites the country for a day. And then it goes straight into Independence Day to remind us that there was a reason for, for all of that. And when I moved to the States and the first Memorial Day came, I asked my friends, like, what are we doing? <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? What are we doing? I'm like, what are we doing? They're like, we're doing a barbecue. And I was blown away. I was blown away. And I, I'm, I have maybe two friends who are veterans and I'm the only one, you know, I'm the only one. I'm a, I'm a veteran and I don't have a lot of friends who are veterans. And it's, it's unfortunate. There's a, there's a, a little bit of a disconnect, I think, within the American people and the military because it's a, because it's a, it's a paid military. It's not, I wish we had more of an ownership around it and more kind of like pride. And I actually say thank you for your service when I see military service. And I, you know, I, I, I find, I find it um, admirable because I know it's necessary, sadly. So what kind of kid were you growing up? What was your growing up experience? <laughs> I, um, I was, <laughs> I was very determined. I was extraordinarily determined. I was very driven and very determined. And wait, 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 determined to do what? As soon as I got the stage bug, that was all I wanted to do. That was all I wanted to do. I, so I was, I was a good kid. I was, I was the youngest for my mom. I had, my parents got divorced when I was about eight years old. I had three older sisters that were kind of, um, uh, more rebels than me. They grew up in like the eight seventies, eighties. They were smoking pot and hitchhiking to Sinai and, and causing a little bit more trouble so when I came around, I was like, I'm just going to be a good girl. I don't want to rebel. I don't need to rebel. I'm just going to do my thing. So I was very, I was good like that, but I always ended up doing what I wanted to do very quietly. So as soon as I, as soon as I went on stage for the first time, which was when I was around 14 years old in drama school, I'm like, oh my God, this is all I want to do. And I became so focused, like so, and being a mom today, my son is seven years old. I'm see, I'm kind of going, this was actually quite extraordinary because I knew what I wanted to do. I would go to sleep early. I would go to rehearsals. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't, I was very, very focused on, on being successful and being good at what I do. I worked on my singing. I worked on my dancing. I worked on, you know, I, I took acting classes. I got my first scholarship at, with the Tel Aviv Museum of Arts. And I, I was very, very focused and very determined. And it's, you know, I created my first format, television format, when I was 20 years old. So I, I was, that was, that was kind of the, the kid that I was. I was a good girl that ended up doing what she wanted to do. Okay. So when you were growing up in today, mm -hmm. What is everyday life in Israel like compared to everyday life in the U.S.? It's a great question. Um, so on the surface, it's the same, right? It's the same. It's the same TV shows, the same music. It's the same food, better food in Israel. Actually, by the way, I always say to people that go to Israel, I challenge you to find a bad meal because the food is so good over there. So on the surface, it's the same. It's, it's like, it's exactly the same. You think of yourself as like a citizen of the world, exactly the same as the U.S., kind of like a little sister of the U.S., but it isn't because every house has a bomb shelter. Every, like every apartment building has shelters in every floor. 
every office building has to have a shelter. When you walk around in a neighborhood, you see shelters, shelters, shelters. Every few blocks, you see a bomb shelter. Um, every couple of years, you sit around at a restaurant somewhere and suddenly the sirens go off because Hamas decided to throw a couple of rockets because they're not happy about something. So this is something that's ongoing in the Israeli experience that I don't think anybody understands this. So when people complain about Israeli actions, the Israeli attitude can and should be to some extent, you go live 30 miles from Hamas and then we'll talk, right? So there's an undercurrent as an Israeli of danger, of danger. So I remember this as a child. There was a terrorist attack one time and they were very close to my house in Tel Aviv and we all had to go into the houses and close the doors. They got on a bus on a, on a road near the beach and they were roaming Tel Aviv basically and nobody could find them. Um, I remember as a, as a, in high school when, or as a teen, like an element, whatever, like a, I can't remember the age, but I was maybe middle school. The Gulf War happened and suddenly were there sirens and like Saddam Hussein is throwing rockets on us and we have to go to school with gas masks. <laughs> so I'm walking around with a gas mask and I had a box. Uh, it's kind of like a cardboard box that had a strap on it. And I was a very creative child and I basically decorated it with like lace and red and like glitter and whatever. And it's a, it's a gas mask that I'm a, I'm a 13 year old taking to, to school. That's not right. So, but underneath and, and above all of that, there's a, a very strong, like kind of joie de vivre in Israel. People are, people have a very strong, not just will to live, obviously, but also just like will to enjoy life to, you know, that people go out and they celebrate and they take their babies to restaurants and they you know, it's, it's a very lively society because there's a constant threat. So when you live with this, this concept of tomorrow might not come, you want to enjoy life. You really do. And appreciate life. Okay. So would you ever, as an individual, someone say, well, let's go to this area and you'd say, well, that's sort of a dangerous area or something happened there. Would you ever check yourself or would you say, I'm alive, I'm just going to live my life to the fullest. The risk is inherent and I don't care. We're, we're going to live our life to the fullest. So what, what you do basically, we're so used to it. So something happens. There's, Hamas, again, Hamas throwing a rocket into, into Tel Aviv, right? So you hear the siren, you're like, oh, shh snap, okay, you go into the safe room or the shelter or whatever it is that you have in your house, you wait for it to pass, you hear the bombs, you hear it falling around, you listen to the news, they say it's okay, military goes in, taking care of the launchers, and you're like, all right, great, let's go back to coffee. That's just what you do. People just go immediately snap back to, yeah, all right, we, we have to keep on living. By the way, that's true for a lot of places in the, the, the country, not so much to the region in the south, because the southern towns of Israel and the children are traumatized because they are constantly under attack. So it reaches Tel Aviv and like the rest of the country every now and then. But in the south, in like Otefaza, the circular kind of like cities and, and towns around Gaza, this happens so often that they have children there that can't sleep, you know, that are legitimately traumatized. And then standard of living, living and homogeneous society. We have great income inequality in America. What's it like in Israel and to what degree 
what is the standard of living? So it's not homogeneous. Like it's not Israel's not a monolith, right? There's like a there's Jews of of every descent. There's like Christians and Arabs and Druze, and there's like it's a very 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 eclectic country, like super eclectic. And you see this on the street when you walk around, and you see it with the food, and you hear it with the music. It's like it's very very eclectic. Um, it's a good question. I wish I had like a GDP kind of numbers for you on this, but I don't. Um, Expense and inflation and uh, um, rise of, of living, expense of living is, is a problem in, in a lot of countries. So there's a lot of money in Israel and the tech companies and, and the tech industry and, and other industries, but there's also, there's also income inequality that needs to be addressed, not dissimilar to what's happening here. Okay, you came here because someone said if you want to be you know, in the A-level actress world, you have to go to Hollywood. But there are a lot of emigres from Israel. Why would people leave Israel? I mean, why would people come here from any other country? This is America. <laughs> I'm a big fan of America. I don't think particularly there are more Israelis here than there are like French people here or Swedish people here. I don't think so. I think that I just think that, look, America is, is the shiny house on the hill. and doesn't matter how screwed up our, our politics are. It still is. So people want to come here. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's necessarily just specifically because Israelis leave more. I don't well, think so. I, was, I wasn't, in, if that was implied, that was not my yeah. uh, belief. But, okay, with all the craziness in I mean, Israel. It, the other thing, by the way, the, 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 the thing is this, right? It's a very small country over there. So the reason... You 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 don't you might not even know how many Israelis and like how many Israelis you work with or you meet or you know or you use their products or you know there are Israeli professors in a ton of universities and there are authors and there's there are chefs there's like Israeli cuisine in America that's exploding right now all over the country there there's a lot of <laughs> Israel is Israeli designers are dominating in like the bridal dress like bridal dresses right now all the biggest designers are israeli designers so it's a very small country so i have a feeling that a lot of people feel like they need to branch out of the country in order to expand their business but they don't necessarily leave they sometimes will expand their business internationally it's a very small country obviously that's what happened with the entertainment industry that's what happened with like the formats this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so tell us about your moving from Israel to Los Angeles. I, 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 I always wanted to live in America. I'm not entirely sure why. I, I have, I described that in the book as well in this, in this, I had a dream to move here. I had a, I wanted to live in America. I wanted to live in America when I was in high school. Like I had this, I saw myself as a high school kid with like a ponytail and speaking in English and all that. I'm not entirely sure why, but it was always appealing to me. And I had no reason to do it. None of my family was ever born or raised or lived in America. My entire family is Israeli. My mom grew up in Africa. And, but, but I just had this, I just had this drive. So when that producer told me that line, just basically if you, he said, if you make watches, you need to live in, in Switzerland. If you make wine, you need to live in France. And if you're in the entertainment industry, you need to live in Los Angeles. I just went, okay, great. And I just moved just like that with two suitcases and didn't know anybody. I knew one person. So I'm not entirely sure why I had that drive. It was obviously I came for the entertainment industry. I came to further my career, but it shaped up to be so much more important and so very different to what I thought. Um, it's, you know, I know it's kind of like there's a, there's a, a concept called Basharit. Do you know the concept? Which is a Yiddish, you know, it's a Yiddish, it's, it's usually referred to a romantic love like you're meant to be, but it's kind of like the concept of meant to be. And when I see what I do now and how my life turned out, I know that I'm so much more valuable to the world from here um, that I, it really was meant to be, even though it didn't, it did not work out the way I thought it was going to work out. Like I had a record deal. I thought I'm going to be Britney Spears, but that didn't work out, but other things worked out in much better ways and much more exciting. And, uh, and important, most of all, like being able to talk about being able to talk about anti-Semitism all day long, and talk about the state of Israel, and make people see things differently, and see where it is that they have blind spots, and what it is that we can make to create unity in the world. This is extraordinary. I'm very lucky to be able to do that. So, how'd you get rid of your accent? <laughs> I never had it. That, that's again for a second. I've never had it. I never had it. And that's the crazy thing, because if you ever met an Israeli, this is, you know, you can be outside of Israel for 30 years and you still talk him, you know, like an Israeli, which is what my father talked like. All I need to do is uh, a lot of, uh, right? And there was a lot of hand talking to, to the people who are listening. Um, I 
don't know. It's a part of, it's a part of that mystery that had me want to be here that I was in elementary school and we started, started learning English. And I kind of started speaking English with an American accent and not, and my kids in class were like laughing at me. I'd stand up in class and answer, give an answer. And they'd be like, rah, 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 rah. Like, why do you have an accent? I'm like, why don't you? So it's also, it's a, it's a part of, it's a part of this weird thing that I had, I guess had to be here, but also because I'm a singer, I can pretty much imitate every accent as well. So wherever I'm at, whatever, however somebody's speaking to me, I imitate it uh, accidentally. So when I'm in London or in Australia or in England or in Australia, I have to be very careful because I turn into very douchey cons like person because I start imitating the accent that I hear. So, so you, there were no special classes, no courses. I've, you didn't I've have to work on it all. <laughs> I have never taken a single class, like dialect class, not a single one, not a single one. Okay, so you you yeah. come to America, America to act. Your book says you had a certain level of success, but not at the level of your dream. Can you tell us mm -hmm. about that? Well, I came to America already very successful. So I started acting at a very young age, and I got I became successful around sixteen or seventeen, um, and super successful around the age of 19 and this television show that I did that became a, a basically a national hit within one episode to a point where we couldn't walk down the street. Um, it was the equivalent of like a Melrose place. It was called La Mata Gimel. It was like a nighttime soap opera. Ridiculous, but so fun. And it was the first soap opera in Israel. Um, and we all became overnight sensations. So I, by the age of 21, I was offered like the equivalent of the Tonight Show, like a nightly evening show. I was very, very successful. Um, I say this like that because I've noticed that a lot of girls, especially young girls, I do a lot of college and high school talks. They try to, they talk themselves down. They don't own their success. So I always say that the girls like own your success. You did amazing. So I try to do that myself. So I came here, I came here already famous and I was certain that it's going to be the same. <laughs> I'm going to be like, oh, you just are going to realize that I'm a very famous person from Israel and you're going to just hand me everything. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> here's the most famous person from France. Here's the most famous person from Holland. <laughs> so it was a rude awakening in, in that sense. I'm like, oh my God, I have to audition my living crap out of everything. I had a record deal as soon as I moved here with MCA. Um, I was traveling all over the world, recording with the best people, the best musician, best um, songwriters. Like I went to Stockholm, I worked with Sharon people, I worked I like everything. And then the label folded, basically, and disappeared. Where you know when it merged into Universal, and I was left with nothing. So it was a very challenging few years of getting very close to something, but not getting it. And the label do like I'm getting this huge record deal that is a huge, huge thing. And then the label folds. So I had a few years of humbling <laughs> that I, I appreciate now. I really do. I don't think I would have been able to handle everything that I'm handling now if I was successful at that level, at that age. I was too young for it. That's one thing to be successful in Israel, but it's a whole other story in America. But you do have acting credits and you do have an yeah. acting career. 
I do. I do. And I did, and I, you know, all the Trekkies in the house say yay. <laughs> in Star Trek. I didn't even realize it's a big deal until I did it. Um, yes, I did. I did. I was working. I was a working actress. I, um, a lot of fans in the industry, the industry was lovely to me. It was never the breakthrough that I wanted. Uh, the biggest breakthrough actually came with producing when I, a part of you were asking what kind of a child I was or what kind of a kid I was and the driven and committed and all of that, that didn't stop when I moved to America. So I had, pants in my pants, even here, as a young adult, I was auditioning and getting roles and whatever, but I kept looking for projects to produce because I was like, I'm not going to just sit down and be quiet. I'm bored. I'm annoyed. I'm not fulfilled. I need to do more. So I was looking for projects to produce. I was working on a documentary format. I was creating a bunch of formats. And then I heard about an Israeli show that's called Metipul, which was basically two people sitting around and having a conversation. So it was a therapist sitting with a patient in a room talking. And I heard that concept and I'm like, oh my God, this is brilliant, right? And I, at the time, was on a show called Coupling, which was a British format that NBC adopted. So I'm kind of going, I went to Israel for two days or a couple of days for my niece's bat mitzvah and everybody were talking about that show and how brilliant it is. You have to watch it, you have to watch it, you have to watch it. And I'm sitting in a car driving with my manager and she turns to me and she goes, oh my God, have you seen Betty Pool yet? You have to watch this show. And I had one of these aha moments. Again, I had like, ding, like a light bulb went above my head and I turned to her and I'm kind of going, oh my God, this is, it's a format. It's, it has to be a format. And I turned to her and I said, do you know the creator? And she said, yes. And I'm like, do you have his number? She said, yes. I said, call him. Call him right now. And mind you, I haven't watched a frame of the show, right? So she calls him up and I pick up the phone and I go, hi, this is no Tishbe. I'm leaving town tomorrow to go back to LA. We need to meet tomorrow morning. And it's not about what you think it is. Because I didn't want him to think that I want like a role <laughs> in the show, right? Right, right. So then I hang up the phone, I turn to her and I'm like, can you get me a DVDs of the show? Because I haven't watched it. But it was so clear to me that this was my format because the idea was so simple and so brilliant and the execution was clearly brilliant because everybody was talking about it. So she, of course, I get the DVD that afternoon and I watched it, I'm floored. I'm like, this is, my, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the first Israeli television show from Israel to America and I'm going to sell it as a show. So I go and meet the guy and I said, what's going on with the show? And he's like, oh, I start working on second season. I'm like, I stop and I go, I'm going to sell your show to HBO. And he looks at me as if I'm insane. Because at the time, this never happened before, obviously. And it so never happened before that there wasn't even a remake claw in the contract of the creators and the network. That wasn't even addressed. Like a remake or international format right sale. It just was not, it didn't exist at all in the reality of anybody. So he's like, okay. And he, I'm like, do you have a translated copy? He's like, yes, I actually do because I'm sending it to some Jewish festival somewhere. And I'm like, great, can I get it? He's like, sure. So he gives me a translated copy of the first five episodes. And I get on a plane back to LA. And I'm thinking, how the fuck do I sell a show to HBO? <laughs> I don't know how to do, no idea how to do that. I literally had no idea how to do that, but I knew that I have a brilliant concept, a brilliant show that needs to be an American show. 
So I come back to LA and I start making calls. My first call is to my lawyer. And I'm like, I have a show from Israel. And he goes, good for you. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it's a format. He's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, the same way that we adopt shows from the UK, we're going to adopt this from Israel. Like, it's a brilliant show. We should do, like, I'm pitching people on adopting a show from Israel. Um, long story short, I brought the show to Stephen Levinson at Leverage and Mark Wahlberg, and we sold it to HBO, and it did four seasons and over 140 episodes, 14 Emmys and Golden Globes nomination, a Peabody Award. Like, it did so well. And what happened as a result of that show was that it created a market where a market didn't exist before, and that market is an Israeli television show in the U.S., and television format sales in the U.S. And so many people don't, a lot of people know like Fauda and shows like that, which are brilliant, but a lot of people don't know so many of the shows that we love are actually based on Israeli formats. Like Euphoria is an Israeli show. So I have a tendency to do things first. <laughs> um, when you kind of look back in my history, um, and this was one of those things that I'm the most proud of because it just it changed the Israeli market forever, it changed um, a lot in the American market, and it's, it changed uh, the perception of Israel within, within Hollywood. It really changed that. And it did okay. A lot of, good. of course, the show on HBO was called In Treatment. Um, one other element in your book, you talk about the Israeli personality that a woman wouldn't expect uh, a man to open the car door, restaurant. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Offended. I was offended. I was offended. I, that's a true story. I, the Israeli personality is, it's what's called a sabra, right? So a lot of people are like, oh, you're a sabra if you were born in Israel. But the reason it's a sabra is because it's spiky from the inside and sweet from the outside. Like spiky from the outside and sweet from the inside, right? There is a, an urgency to being an Israeli that can be translated into rudeness very easily. So if you met an Israeli in your life, you know that there's kind of like an abruptness and kind of like an aggressiveness. And kind. And this comes from the pressure cooker that we live under. So there's no time for pleasantries and politeness. The downside of it is that there's no time for pleasantries and politeness, so it's a little rude. The good side about it is that you always know where you stand. You always know where you stand with an Israeli. And it's something that as an Israeli was very difficult for me to decipher because I didn't understand when people were saying great, but they didn't mean great. They meant no, thank you. Right. So I am the kind of friend and the kind of person that's I'm, I'm straight up. I just find it to be easier. I had to tone myself down in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways and also allow men to open the door for me. I'm a big fan of that now. But the story that you're referring to is my first boyfriend in L.A., who is an Australian actor, and he is very kind of like gentleman in a in an old school way. And he came to pick me up, and when we walked to his car, he opened the door, and I looked at him and I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm opening the door for you." I'm like, "Why? I can get the door. It's fine." I was offended. I was annoyed. It annoyed me. So I'm not like that anymore. Very much want people to open the door for me. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Doesn't take away from my you know strength or my or my or anything else. But, uh, but yeah, this is the, the Israeli way is a lot more, it's a lot more in your face, but it's real. It's real. It's real. You'll know. And if somebody is, if somebody doesn't like you, you'll know it. But if somebody's your friend, you can count on that forever. 
okay, you have a long history of knowing what you want, seeing it and getting it, being very <laughs> agile. Sometimes not getting it, by the way. <laughs> but that's, let me continue here. How does that affect your love life and your interaction with women, someone who's so strong and successful? Okay, these are such great questions, but they're two very separate questions. I'm all about women. My girlfriends are the most important thing for me other than my son. Obviously, I have four sisters, so I am a huge... I My interaction with women is amazing, and women actually, they sense that. So the majority of my followers are women. I get... I, I meet like kids when I speak in colleges and I can't in high schools. And I can't tell you how many times they come to me and like, oh my God, my mom loves you. Like women get me on a profound level. They know that I'm a, I'm a girl's girl through and through. There's no question about that. Every girl right now is listening to it. If she don't know me and she looks through my stuff and she, I'm, I'm a girl's girl. I have four sisters. Women camaraderie is one of the most important things in the world. When I had, like, when I have meltdowns in my life, I got, like, my girlfriends showing up in my L.A. kitchen, sitting around, and, I, I mean, it's so important to me. It's, I think it's one of the most important things in human interaction is the relationship between women. I think that if a woman does not have that, it's such a loss, and I, I, I feel for her. I, I think she should, every woman that doesn't have that needs to go out and seek it. I have extraordinary group of girls around me um, in LA, in Tel Aviv, in New York, in Sydney. And I have my girls crew everywhere. And I also, I mean, I have a WhatsApp group with my two best girlfriends from elementary school, from fourth grade. We still have the WhatsApp group. Like I carry relationships for decades. Um, and my girls are my tribe, like my tribe. Um, in terms of relationships, I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to my third relationship. <laughs> I, um, I was married. Uh, so I had a really, I had two long-term relationships, like two, you know, seven and a half, eight year relationship. They were great relationships, but they didn't end up, uh, continuing. Well, just, just so to be clear, I'm... just to be clear here for a second, <laughs> people say that they broke up. It's mutual. It's never mutual. I would think, knowing you, your personality, that in both of these cases, you were the one who blew the whistle. Bob, you would be so surprised. And right now, if my girls are listening all the way through, they're laughing their asses off right now. They really are. Um, look, I have a son, so I won't publicly talk about, uh, specifically not the relationship with his dad. We're great co-parents. We're working on raising, uh, raising our son together. And, um, I, I, I'm just, uh, I, I think the, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. I didn't realize we're going to go there. Right. I'm a very coupley person. So it's very bizarre that I didn't, that it, they both didn't last, you know, I'm a very coupley person. So it'll be interesting. You know, they say third time's a charm, right? Well, well, so, yeah. well why, why did the, why did the two relationships not work out? What are we having this? What kind of a conversation is that? Um, well, I can talk about the first one because he went public with it. So the first one did not work out because he, he's a lovely guy. Um, he was an addict. Um, and I didn't know he was an addict when we got together and we got married. And we, 
we stuck through it as much as we could, but it destroyed the relationship. And I, again, the only reason I'm talking about it is because he, he, he's a, he's a, he wrote a book about it and he went public. He went public with it. So I didn't, I didn't know to recognize the signs. I mean, in retrospect now I, I should have known, but I could, I couldn't have known. Right. But that's why that didn't work out. And the second one, I, I can't, I can't discuss this. I have a son. I can't, it, it was, it was challenging, but it, and it's not what you are alluding to or thinking. I will tell you once the mic is off. How about that? Okay. Okay. I don't need to press you. Okay. So <laughs> no, you're no, talking I will. about. I just like, I have a son. It's like, I have to be careful on everything that's out there for him to be like, what? You know? Okay, so you're talking about this hypothetical third relationship. Yes. Are you actively seeking it? I'm, I think that, so I, I, we broke up about two and a half years ago, almost two and a half years ago. And I think I'm only, I was not interested in one up until now. I needed to sort things out first. I was a bit dramatic and there were a lot of things that were happening. So I was not open to it. I, I think I, I am I am open to it now. So, yeah. Well, let's see what happens. Well, well, I mean, are you, you know, would you be set up with friends or you meet people through life or would you go on a dating site or any of that? I don't go on dating sites. I've never been on a dating site. I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> I get introduced to people. People are interested in setting me up. I'm not, um, I'm in a great place in life for a woman. Um, not for a woman, just generally for a human being. I think that we need to be in a place in which we're happy with ourselves and happy. Like I have a great son. I have a great life. I have incredible friends. Um, I'm a very coupley person and I want somebody that would compliment me and I would compliment him. Like I want to be able to find my share, to find my, my lobster, my ride or die, my, the friend, the person's going to enjoy all of it with me, you know? We'll see if they're out there. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I have never, Bob, can I tell you something? It's only in Israel that I get asked these questions. In America, I never get asked these questions. In Israel, they, they know me for so many years and they've been through, like the media has been with me since I was a teen. So they always ask these questions and they're like about children and marriage and divorce and all that. This is the first time I'm ever talking about this in America. I'm so confronted. <laughs> I'm like, what? Well, as I say, I'm only asking as a person, this has got more to do with my identity asking these questions than your fame. But just starting- I love talking about, it's not about fame. It's just about, I'm in, in America, my work is so um, overshadowing my personality and my personal life. I didn't even talk about I only recorded like a video that talks about me being a single mom recently and I haven't posted it yet. So I don't even talk about it publicly. Like, it's pretty clear from my social media that I, there's a son, but there's no husband. So, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think people think that I'm like a lot more of a ball buster. I always say about myself that I'm a Labrador in a leopard skin. That's the truth. Wait, say that one more time. I'm a Labrador in a leopard skin. Okay. I look like I'm this ball, but whatever, but I'm just, I'm not. So, you know, if somebody can see through that, then, you know. Going back to the initial question, are men intimidated by your success, personality, beauty, etc.? Um, I'd like to say no, but it's, I don't know. Are you intimidated by it? Do you think it would be intimidating for a guy? Well, I mean. I'm, I'm dead straight. I'm asking. This, this, this is not only you specifically 
you know, this is in all the uh, media at this point, that you have these successful women and there's a limited pool of successful men and should they date down? And then you have all these successful men who want to date down and uh, you're successful in a way beyond just career. And I was wondering how that would affect dating prospects. Were there certain people who'd say, hey, I don't want to date someone that successful. Or would you concomitantly say, I don't want to date someone that unsuccessful? I don't say anything. I, to me, it's about the, the people. I've never dated in my life. I've never, I've never, I've had opportunity to date uh, very big people famous and successful and rich and whatever. I, ne I never cared about that. The joke among my friends is that I didn't. And they're like, you know, they're like, just could you date a billionaire now? And I'm like, no, because it's never been a parameter. So it's not going to be now. Um, I don't know what to tell you in terms of, of if men are intimidated or not. They, they Maybe, maybe not. I, I'm not entirely sure. I don't see myself like that, but that's why I asked you. Would you be intimidated? Are you into, is it intimidating? I'm not the regular guy, you know, the regular guy who has big on image and has his checkbook, whatever. And that's, you know, I would think generally speaking, men would be, then there's an elite level of people who are billionaires and very successful like that. And that's a, they have different criteria, but the average person who's earning a living and doing well, driving a German car or a Tesla I think that uh, they might be intimidated. But moving on from this, the conventional wisdom is that the yeah. Israelis and the Danes make the best television. Forgetting the Danes, why is Israeli television so good? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, invention, like necessity is the mother of all invention. That's legitimately why. The reason Israeli television is so good, and it really is so good, is because, number one, there's no money. <laughs> there's no money in the industry. There's only 9 million people to sell the product to. So to begin with, there's no budget, right? And those people are extraordinarily sophisticated. So it's a sophisticated audience that doesn't take bullshit and would not stick around if the show is not good. And when you create a show... You cannot rely on explosions, helicopters, special effects, monsters. You can't. You have to make sure that the show is great. It's written really well. Like a song that's written on a guitar and you can play it and it's brilliant without all the productions and the rigmarole. That's what Israeli television is. That's why Entreatment is so great. That's why Homeland was such a huge success. That's why Euphoria is so great because it's characters and it's stories and it's people. And that's what the Israeli people like. And because Israelis are so much like Americans, culturally, whatever works there can work here. So it's, it's just, there's no, it's almost like there's no miracle to it. When you know the Israeli culture and you know American culture, you know why the television there, why it works. Okay. Other than in treatment, name your three favorite Israeli television shows. Oh my God. Okay. Well, honestly, it's a show that you're never going to hear about because it's called Eretz Nehderet. Eretz Nehderet is a sketch comedy show that's never going to be able to be adapted because it's so specific, but it's absolutely brilliant. It's the most biting political commentary that you have ever seen. Way harsher than America. So what they'll do there, like you think SNL is biting, it's nothing compared to what they do there. They turn politics into a circus in the cleverest of way. So I would say this is probably my 
most favorite show. It's been going on for 20 years or something. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think the show is now, this show is now on Hulu, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, it's called rehearsals and it was a show that was created by the public broadcaster, um, con 11. And it's again, very small show about a couple that used to be a couple and they wrote a play about themselves. And then the play becomes, they buy the, the theater buys the play, but their relationship breaks apart. So a very small relationship driven, brilliant show. It's called rehearsals. Look it up. It's amazing. That's two. That's two. No, we need a third. A third. Do we need a third? Can I get back to you on that? I mean, I'm sure they're amazing ones. Let me think. I mean, I'll say Fauda. Let's say Fauda because it's amazing. Everybody can watch Fauda on Netflix. It's brilliant. If you haven't gotten addicted yet, go for it. I would go with Prisoners of War and True Oh my God, stop. Sorry. Sorry. I'm changing my mind and I'm putting Prisoners of War there, number one. First of all, because it's the best Israeli television show of all time. And second, because the creator is my best friend and he's going to kill me. Rightfully so. I can't believe I didn't think Prisoners of War. I'm so sorry. Prisoners of War, number one. Eretz Nederet. Rehearsals and well, Okay, so all these people, I've, I've seen a lot of Israeli television, and you tend to see the same actors and actresses. You know, so what kind of uh, economic life would those people have? Not easy. It's not, a television show in Israel does not, um, if you're an actor, you need to do everything. So in Israel, you if you're an actor, only doing a TV show, unlike in America, if you do one TV show here that's successful, you're set. Over there, you need to do TV, you need to do theater, you need to do voiceovers and campaigns and live shows and stand-ups and commercials and a lot of different things. So it's, again, there's no budget. So it's a, it's a tough life in that sense. You have to do a lot of things in order to actually make a living as an actor in Israel. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, let's go back to you. So what does an average week or an average month look like now? They vary. So first of all, I travel all the time. So there's, I, I do, I started a college campus tour now. So I travel, I go to speak on colleges. I started with uh, Berkeley um, or as. Wait, 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 wait. A, a little bit, a little bit slower. How did this yes. get set up and do you get compensated? I do get compensated. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a discounted price for colleges. So I, and I do a lot of high schools as well for, for, you know, nothing basically, but, it, but it's, um, I travel a lot. I travel a lot. Well, how, do you, how do you get, world. how do you, how do you get those gigs? I have a speaking agent and they contact him and he reaches out and now they know to talk to him if they, if they want to book me to go in and to go and speak. But the college campus store for me is one of the most exciting ones because because of what's happening with BDS on college campuses, because anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism on campuses is so extreme, I love going to college campuses. I started with Berkeley, or as I let's, wait, let's, let's, let's slow yeah. down there. Berkeley yes. is, uh, is a hotbed of uh, political activity. A, who hosted your speech? And two, how many people came? Great question. So first of all, it wasn't actually a speech. So I went to Berkeley because um, there was an article that came out a few, a couple of months ago about the fact that at Berkeley Law School, some student groups have outlawed in their bylaws, basically in their constitution, they outlawed any speaker to come and speak to them if they support Israel or Zionism, effectively creating a, what the article was referring to as a Jewish free zone. So... The campus, the university tried to say it's only nine groups in the, in the campus, but the problem is that these groups were the women's groups, the LGBTQ group, the Asian Pacific groups, so big, big groups, call it, um, student groups. So the kids on Berkeley have been feeling um, alienated, discriminated against, uh, marginalized for a very long time, and this was kind of like the straw that broke their backs and they reached out to me and they asked, they, they, they asked me basically if I want to go. And I said, absolutely, I'll go. And I just asked them, what do they need? What do they want me to do? So they asked me, that, that's the Jewish groups, the Jewish groups on Berkeley, Jewish students groups on Berkeley. They said they wanted me to, first of all, come and hang out with them and have dinner. So I came over and I hung out at the Hillel and sat with the students and chatted to them and to see how they're doing. They're not doing well. They're very concerned and feel alienated. And I heard some horrific stories about that. And then the next day, they wanted me to do what's called a tabling event. So, and that's what they wanted me to do. So they didn't want me to come and speak at the Hillel. They want me to be out there on the main plaza and put a table and have conversations with people. And 
I said, okay, great, I'll do that. And they said, you put a, basically put a sign above the table and you just kind of reach out to students and have conversations. So I said, sure, I'll do that. And I said, I'm going to have the table, the sign above the table say, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Let's have a chat. And I did that. And it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I was there for four hours. The video is on my Instagram and on my social media and on YouTube as well, I think. But it's, I was attacked. I was yelled at. I was harassed. I was ignored. I was ganged up on. I didn't want to bring security because I don't want to change my life because of the work that I do. But the people that I was going with basically ruled out and said at some point, like a day before, they're like, you know what, we're just going to have security there for you. So there was plain clothes carrying security guy. And I was very happy that he was there because I was scared, like legitimately scared. I was, atta- I was attacked so badly. Well, and a little bit more, a little bit more specifically, what happened? Enough with the yelling, the blood on your hands, and you're enough with the killing. And you know, I had people ganging up on me, and I'm trying to have conversations, and they don't want to have conversation. There was demonstrations, there was yelling, there was you know, you should just you can check out the video. It's it's extreme. It's extreme. And I walked out of there after four hours and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm exhausted. This is terrible. And this just me for four hours. What are the Jewish kids on campus are going through? How do they feel? And the answer is they feel terrible. College campuses right now, in terms of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment, is a hotbed. It's horrible. We hear reports that student Jewish students on campus only feel safe in Jewish spaces. It's to what to the point that I was saying before. It's like you're Jewish, don't ask, don't tell. As long as you're not telling anybody, as long as you're not out there visibly Jewish, proud Jewish, then you're fine. It's horrible on college campuses. So I do a lot of that. I was at Duke last week, which was incredible. I went to the University of Miami. I've got, I'm doing UCLA. Oh, okay. You, you, you had those bad, experience, bad experiences at Berkeley. So what happened like at Duke and the University of Miami? Duke was, um, University of Miami was great. It was um, Florida Atlantic University, actually, and the University of Miami. I did both of them. Those two experiences were, were great. And Duke was also great. Duke was intense because there's a lot of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism at Duke. And the, they had a huge turnout in terms of the students and, and local people from the community. Um, Apparently, the, the biggest that they had for a very long time, because a lot of students at Duke, Jewish students at Duke are very concerned by what's happening. And it was interesting because the professor that was interviewing me was not, it was throwing curveballs. Like, it was asking me very harsh questions that I disagreed with. And I had to um, set my foot down and basically, he was, you know, nobody puts baby in the corner, right? And he was saying all these things like the ethnic cleansing and the genocide. And I'm like, I disagree. Let me tell you why. And what I heard from the students afterwards, which is totally legitimate, by the way, we can definitely have a conversation about that. I got nothing against that. Um, But what I was able to show the students is also how do you stand in front and stand in the face of these uncomfortable conversations? Because a lot of people just recoil. They just kind of like, I don't want to talk about it. It's too complicated. And I'm trying to show people that it's okay to have these uncomfortable conversations. We have to have these uncomfortable conversations because otherwise, what are we doing? So it was, that's what I heard from the kids there, that they, it was very helpful for them to see me kind of like butt heads with a professor a little bit because it showed them how to handle it when it comes. Because it comes, it comes a lot, it comes up a lot. So I do a lot of that. 
I travel um, to various places around, again, around the country and around the world. And when I'm in LA, it's a lot of like reading, writing, working on the next book, um, posting on social media, doing videos, taking meetings. It's very, <laughs> uh, it's a it's a busy time to be fighting anti-Semitism, sadly. Okay, let, let, let's go. High times. <laughs> let's, let's go back. When you do these speaking engagements, generally speaking, are you preaching to the converted or do the people who disagree with you show up? I, wow. The, okay, oddly enough, other than Berkeley, I did not have people show up to protest, which is kind of surprising, honestly, because I don't, we don't hide that I'm going to speak. So we're, we're wondering why they didn't show up. I'm all about, I've, you know, I, I've been through these conversations many times. I can, I can handle it. I'm, please accost me. I'll be fine. Hackle the shit out of me. It's okay. You're allowed, but it hasn't happened yet. I'm not only preaching to the choir. I'm obviously talking to a lot of, um, people in the Jewish community, but I have a lot of people that invite me to speak to their non-Jewish friends in their workspaces. This is something that I really want to do more of. Like, I think Google should invite me to speak about anti-Semitism and Apple and Coca-Cola and like these companies need to... Oh, 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 okay, but let's let's go back to the basic question. By the way, not just me, just generally speaking, corporations need to deal with anti-Semitism head on. Right. But do the people who need their beliefs challenged, do they show up? Yes. Yes. So one of the people that I, like, so for example, at at Duke, I know of a few kids that were there that were brought in by their Jewish friends because they had an issue with Israel and an issue with anti-Semitism. I know that people use these talks in order to bring out their community and bring out their friends when they need to be challenged or addressed. I also know that people use my videos for that. So they save my videos online and then they send them to people when something arises. So yes, definitely. Definitely. And do I want to be more in more spaces where I'm not? um, More spaces that are less preaching to the choir? Of course. But again, it's not easy because it's Jewish advocacy and it's people don't, it's not as comfortable as other advocacies for people to kind of like wrap, wrap their heads around. Is this a Sisyphean endeavor, or do you think you're making a difference? Both. So I don't, we, we didn't touch upon that, but I'm, I'm also uh, sometimes uh, Israel's first special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and delegitimization. So I was appointed by then Foreign Ministry Lapid to represent Israel when I'm asked uh, on international stage uh, as the anti-Semitism envoy. And when we had this conversation, he offered me the position. He said, you know, how the United States has a special envoy for anti-Semitism in Canada and the EU and a lot of other countries in the world, and Israel doesn't have one. I said, right. I didn't think about that. And he's like, would you like to be that person? And I said, absolutely, yes. And then I started laughing. And he asked me, why why are you laughing? And I said, because you're setting me up to fail. Like, I'm literally never going to be successful in this. And he started laughing and he said, you know, he said, I expect you to end anti-Semitism within three months. Give me a report, please. Um, Anti-Semitism is the oldest form of hate and discrimination that's still being practiced today. There is no reason for me to think that I'm going to be able to end it. It's crazy. It's never going to end fully. Am I making a difference? Yes. I know that for a fact. Okay. I know that I'm making a difference. Sorry. Are there any other Noah Tishbees out there, but we just don't know who they are? 
There are other advocates out there. Yeah, there are other people that are doing this. It's, it's. I mean, everybody, everybody is different, but I can definitely recommend people to follow uh, an account named A Wider Frame and a, a guy named Blake Flayton and uh, Eve Barlow and Lizzie Savetsky is like a great advocate. There, there are people out there, but, you know, the Jewish people are 0.02% of the world population or 0.2% of the American population. We're less than 15 million people around the world. We're ve- it's a very small number of people. So when it comes to online, when it comes to, we're, we're kind of drowning, you know, our voices are drowned a little bit. Wh- by the what is your personal belief of the cause of the great resurgence? Anti-Semitism never went away, but yes. even statistically it's burgeoned in the last seven years or so. Why do you think that is? You know, here's the thing. Throughout history, every time a society was having challenges, the Jews were to blame. So when we look at it in the perspective of history, this is not surprising at all. When we look at what ha- what's happening now with like the modernization of, of anti-Semitism, again, whether it's Kanye West or anti-Zionism, you kind of look around, you go, Okay, we've been through a pandemic, so then, of course, there are going to be voices that say that the Jews created the pandemic. And we're sitting looking at it going, really? Cute. So every time there's, like, economic challenges, they'll find the Jews. There's a plague, it's the Jews' fault. This has happened throughout history, and this is something that, to some extent, the Jews are to be blamed. Because anti-Semitism is not simple racism, right? It's a, it's a conspiracy theory. So it says that the Jewish people are... They're also like the they're, they're they're like the Nazis would say, right? The vermins of the earth, and they're a lower race, and they're like the scum of the earth, right? But they're also controlling everything, and they control the banks, and they control Hollywood, and they control this, and they control that. So there's this like duality of anti-Semitism that isn't simple racism. That's why it's harder to decipher. And every every time throughout history, it just repops. So it's repopping. Society has been through a lot of stress in the past few years. And lo and behold, blame the Jews. Yes, but everything you're saying is certainly true. But observers would say there you can say things and there will be no repercussions in a way that never happened, certainly in my lifetime. Sure. You know, so it's sure. been legitimized. 100%. And, and why do you think it's been legitimized? Jews don't count. <laughs> There's this book, it's it's actually, a, uh, David Bedell wrote a book called Jews Don't Count and showing throughout like recent history how in every, Jews don't count in like DEI um, offices. Jews don't count as a minority. Literally people don't look at the Jewish people and think a minority, right? So there's this kind of like double standard when it comes back to the Jewish people again, because the Jewish people are not considered, they're not underrepresented. The Jewish people have used the American system in a way like this is a blessing, right? We're like, oh my God, we can actually achieve things. Great. And now it's held against us, right? So it's it's a very, it's an, I don't want to cry wolf and I don't want to be like competing in the oppressed Olympic, right? You can be both an oppressed minority and also do well. It's just that people need to notice that their subconscious biases towards the Jewish people are affecting them, whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. What would you tell... You know, you speak at college campuses, those are developing people. But let's just talk adults. What would you tell adults to do in the face of this anti-Semitism? First of all, say something when you see something. And second, reach out to your Jewish community. This is something that's not a joke. If you see 
if you if you see a, like a rise in anti-Semitism online in your neighborhood, reach out to your Jewish friends, reach out to your synagogue, the neighborhood synagogue, see if they need help. Actually reach out, actually reach out. Again, this is something we are walking around feeling like we're, I'm creating a lot of allyship, like reaching outside of our community and finding more allies because the Jewish community doesn't have allyship in the way that we would like to have. So that's something that I would say to, again, to people who are not, who are not Jewish, who are listening to this, reach out, reach out. We're under stress right now. Every Jewish person that you know is like freaking out a little bit. Pulling the lens back a little bit, what do you think about intermarriage? Because certainly in the United States, there is a rising uh, number, rising percentage of people who are marrying people outside the faith, and there's a limited number of Jews to begin with. Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, the father of my child is not Jewish, (laughs) so... And my child is raised Jewish, and his identity is very strong, and he is first language is Hebrew, but it didn't... It's important to me to raise my child Jewish, but I wasn't that particular about the father in terms of religion or tradition, also knowing that I'm the woman, so it goes by the mother. I, look, I technically, I, I just, I think we need more Jews, so I would loosen the the, the acceptance bar, uh, but that's just me. Um, but the good thing to remember is that everybody is welcome to be Jewish. Like, everybody is welcome. It's going to take some work, but everybody's welcome. So I would love to see as many more Jews as possible. I also think that the, the, with Jewish culture and Jewish people, the proof is in the pudding. So there's something about Jewish way of life that works, right? And as Jews, we, instead of celebrating that, we sometimes kind of try to hide it. So we try to hide the, the bizarre fact, right, that the Jewish people are 0.02% of the world population, but we're 22% of Nobel Prize winners. 29 in like economics, 20, I can't remember the exact breakdown, but like 22%. That's a crazy number. And that's not because of some cabal or some genetic, like it's not, right? There's something about the Jewish way of life that's really good that everybody should adopt as well. And that's something that I'm very, as a secular Jew, I celebrate because I think culturally we got so much to contribute because just think of how great, how great would it be if the entire world would celebrate Shabbat? On a Friday, just get together with friends and family and like stop everything and just relax and not talk about mundane stuff and focus about, you know, focus on like what's what matters. Like there's a lot of, there are a lot of things about the Jewish tradition that are magic that need to be adopted by the entire world. How great would that be? So that's my attitude. My attitude is that we need to be more open in terms of acceptance and um, spread out that kind of like way of life more. It's not that big of a secret, by the way. It's all out there. We can all live like that. (laughs) Okay, although some of this stuff actually engenders anti-Semitism, but moving the focus once again. What do you mean? Okay, this is the same thing. I don't want to get deep into a discussion of this because there's a lot of nuance. Mm -hmm. But this is the same thing uh, Asians are combating at this particular point in time. There's a very, people would say, I don't want to start getting into getting in trouble, but there's a very strong uh, family importance placed on education. So therefore, yes. there are people feel that the Asians are taking their spots in education. And conversely, their Asians believe they're being discriminated against. So uh, 
there's a long history with Jews that um, people feel, well, you took my spot, you know, and, you know, this is all a thing together. You speak a little Yiddish, whatever, and I'm not included. Okay, that wasn't at all what I was saying. And as long as America is a meritocracy, that's great. We can, this is all about achievements. I, I, no, I hear what you're saying. I don't think this was not what I was, you know. What well, was well let, me, was... let, me, let me change a little bit. Mm-hmm. The world is not about facts. The world is about perception. Sure. Okay. And then you say, you know, as you said earlier, when times are tough, people are looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. And it's you and me both. Yeah. You and me both know how hard it is to make it in Hollywood. People have no idea. You mm-hmm. have to sacrifice everything and you still may not make it. But there are a lot of people who don't make it or don't even try who blame the Jews. Okay? Right. So there are these examples and they cause anti Semitism. But I want to move to a different topic. Let's talk about Wait, Let Israel. me just, just to, okay, to that sure, point, just sure. for a second. Absolutely. Just to that point. Yeah. I refuse to recoil to that, and I'm going to stay proud, loud and proud Jew, and because I know that historically, if I go quiet, it's not going to stop anti-Semitism. So I'm actually flipping it on its head. I'm going to be as loud and as proud and as open. I'm going to invite people for Shabbat. I'm going to be as open as I possibly can, because either way, anti-Semitism is not going to go away. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's my attitude. Very, very clearly delineated. But let's go to Israel today. You had a video you posted about, well, Israel's a democracy, and just like in the U.S., there are people, you know, have different opinions, there's protests, and that that shows a healthy democracy. Today, which is March 1st, Thomas Friedman has an opinion piece in the New York Times talking about Israel being on the precipice. This is one person's opinion. I don't want to say that I'm going (laughs) to... Thomas Friedman himself gets a lot of blowback. But talking about Netanyahu, talking about the Supreme Court situation, talking about the settlements, what is your take on what's going on in Israel today? Um, My take on it is that Israel is such a flourishing democracy, it's virtually almost ungovernable. That's one of the things that people need to understand. What's happening right now is very delicate because, I mean, again, I don't want to, this is inside baseball, so maybe people have no idea what we're talking about, but basically the new government is, it's the most right-wing government that Israel's ever had, and they're trying to create these judicial reform very quickly, and the majority of the country is resisting them, and there are a lot of demonstrations, like, like, huge percentage of the population are out on the street demonstrating. So first of all, that's beautiful. That's democracy. That's number one. Um, my opinion about what's happening is that they need to slow down. That's my opinion. They have to slow down. These reforms need to be taken very seriously and need to come to a wide agreement. They must know now that there is no wide agreement. The percentage, large percentage of Likud voters want to slow it down, don't think that it's the most important thing right now to do. Um, but again, it's a, it's a flourishing democracy. Let's see, let's see what happens. Look, if every single one of these laws pass and then they pass, like that every country can implode, right? And we, they took Roe away from us. It's, this is terrible, but it's not the end of the American democracy. So this is a part of the process. We're all concerned and we're all watching it carefully, but it's a part of the democratic process. What's happening there right now? 
okay. listen, talk to me in three months, maybe my opinion would be different. But right now I'm kind of like, all right, this is, it's happening and it's, it's the process. It's a moving, it's a moving and every day there's something else that's happening. Exactly. So. It's a moving yeah. picture. But also, and you referenced this in the beginning, but let's look at it not from the outside, but the inside. To what degree do the Orthodox um, affect the perception of Jews in general? It's like we were talking about intermarriage, et cetera. One of the big stories in America now, and I know some people who are involved in uh, very uh, tr religious, traditional uh, groups where they're having a lot of kids because they say we have to repopulate the Jews. New York Times has done all these series about uh, these mm -hmm. uh, communities are taking money and not really educating their kids. In Israel, you have the uh, Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox. They don't have to go into the army, etc. So speak to this, please. I always say... <laughs> about my book that left, right, and center, you can pretty much tell where I stand, but I can explain everybody's perception. And I'm not going to be, I'm, I was, the book was endorsed by the left and the right, both in Israel and in America, right? But who is not going to be happy about that are the ultra-Orthodox. Those are the only community that I was like, you guys, I can't defend that. So honest to God, and again, this is inside, this is full on inside baseball, right? I cannot defend not teaching core curriculum to generations of people within Israel or within or outside of Israel. I just can't defend that. I think that is abhorrent and it's disgraceful and it's terrible for it's 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 abusive for the children. There's no question about that. And it's not sustainable. So the orthodox population in Israel is about 14%. Uh, they're growing. A lot of people are leaving the orthodoxy. So it's kind of like balance it out. It's not going to take over like everybody, but it's like the entire country. But there's no world in which you don't need to teach core curriculum, and that needs to change immediately. That's my opinion. Again, what about sorry? Aren't, aren't the ultra orthodox also behind the settlements? Um, not entirely. The ultra orth—it's not entirely. The ultra orthodox are a lot of the ultra orthodox are actually not don't even believe in the existence of the state of Israel. So they, they believe that it's an abomination because there hasn't been the third temple yet. So it's not, the settlers are more kind of, there are a lot of Americans in the settlements, actually. And it's more, it's kind of like the more Masultim, traditional Masultim Munim, you know, more than that. It's less the ultra, ultra Orthodox, the ones with the black hats and, the, and all of that. But I'm against not studying core curriculum. There's no, nothing controversial about that. <laughs> okay, so the average American... We're talking about the government and the settlements, et cetera. They're not thinking about that. But on a regular basis in the news, there are actions and retaliations. Yes. And the Jews, the Israelis in this case, which are both, are constantly criticizing these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you think is really going on here. Hmm. I'll tell you a story. Um, a few years ago, I was in Israel with my, um, the father of my child, my ex was, was, we were there together at the same time, obviously. And we were sitting and having dinner in Herzliya on the beach and there was tension. So before, sometimes before these attacks, you kind of get intelligence and they somehow kind of, they're like, all right, it's tense. Hamas might try something. So be on alert. And we're sitting and having dinner and all of a sudden, 
the sirens go off and I'm sitting with my, I'm sitting south, facing south. The Mediterranean Sea is to my right and I'm looking at him facing south and we're on the beach outside and the siren starts going off and I start seeing missiles coming from the south and the south of Herzliya and Tel Aviv is the Gaza Strip. And we're like, oh shit, we're just looking at it. And I'm like, look, look behind you. Here they are. Here are the missiles. And we get off and we go to the shelter and we wait for it to pass. An hour later, we are in the hotel room in Herzliya and we're watching CNN. And the headline is Israel attacks in Gaza. And my ex, who is an American Southern Baptist from Tallahassee, looks at it and he goes, that's not what happened. They just threw missiles at me. What? That's not what happened. And I'm sitting and I'm looking at him and I'm rolling my eyes and I'm like, yep, welcome to Israel. This happens all the time. There's a terrorist attack. They call it Israelis were, you know, the, the, uh, people were murdered. They don't call it a terrorist attack. Israel retaliates. They call it an attack. And they don't say what preceded the retaliation. This is the bias in the media is so extreme that... Once you've seen it for the first time, you can't unsee it. And we do this all the time, and it comes up every time this happens. We, there's this whole thing with the activists. They're like, no, New York Times, no, The Guardian. Let me correct that. And we kind of X whatever they say, and we say what actually happened. But this is what happens all the time. The bottom line is Hamas, for that matter, is a terrorist organization that took over Gaza by force. Again, Israel does not control Gaza. Israel unilaterally retreated out of Gaza and handed it to the Palestinians and then Hamas took over. So Hamas is the one who's controlling Gaza. It's a terrorist organization that wants to enact Sharia law, which is the embodiment of rape culture, right? Sharia law, not Arab culture, not Muslims and not, you know, this particular um, iteration and wants to wipe Israel off the map. And that's what we're dealing with here. And we're dealing with people that celebrate death, we're dealing with people that, again, I'm prefacing it's the extremists of them, right, that are dragging the entire region into hell. We're dealing with people that the more casualties there are, the better it looks. And it's, it's just, it's horrible. And it's horrible for the Palestinian people. Look, I've been to demonstrations and I carried signs saying free Gaza from Hamas, free Palestine from Hamas, not from Israel. If these extreme groups would have put down their weapons and would have agreed to accept the existence of a Jewish state, there would have been a Palestine and there would have been prosperity and collaboration and communication. Just like, look at what's happening with the Abraham Accord, with the UAE, with Israel. Suddenly, it's, it's, suddenly the region is acknowledging what everybody, publicly, basically, what everybody knew privately. And that is, Israel is not a big bad wolf of the Middle East. Iran is. And if you want more tech and more advancement and more freedom and more democracy, Israel's your partner. So if you get out your crystal ball, what do you foresee as the future of Israel and the future of anti-Semitism in America? Those are two different questions, but both the future. Oof. Look, Israel's, Israel's strong and Israeli people are resilient, smart, and stubborn. So Israel's going to be fine. It's, it's not going to be pretty, and it's, not, it's, it's challenging right now. 
but Israel is going to be fine. There's also such extraordinary people there with so much brain and so much innovation. And if it's the country, if the country is not going to be changed, um, laws are not going to be changed to a point that it changes it such that we can't recognize it anymore. Israel is going to be fine. Um, anti-Semitism is not going anywhere, actually. So it's kind of like a Jewish mandate to make the world a better place. And it's our job to continue warning the world when this comes up. There was a, an article years ago uh, by Jonathan, I forgot his last name. Oh my God, it's in my book. It's called, it, the, the, he basically, he's the one who kind of coined the Jews of the canary in the coal mine. Um, the Jewish people, when society turned on its Jews, it's a sign that society is in trouble. So every country in the world that turned on the Jews, that was a foreshadowing for something bad that was going to happen in society. So it's kind of like, it's almost our role to stand there and be like, no, we're not going to let you do this because we don't want America and the world to implode and just notice that you're being anti-Semitic. Let's just stop that. It's not going anywhere, but I hope that in my lifetime, at least it's going to go back and become unfashionable again. Because that's the thing that we're frustrated about. Not that it came back, because again, it's never went, it never went away, but it became acceptable. That is a shocking proposition for all of us. Well, it would be hard not to look at the United States and not say the visibility of the anti-Semitism and the ability to verbalize it came in mm -hmm. with the Trump administration. And you have a unique situation where the right wing always pledges fealty to Israel, support for Israel. There's issues as to whether that's because they see it as the Christian uh, homeland or defensive, whatever. But our country at large, irrelevant of anti-Semitism, uh, most people on both sides of the feds don't think it's going in the right direction. Now, right. wouldn't that portend even more anti-Semitism? Yes, it does. That's why it's going up so much. And look, the thing to acknowledge is that right now we're dealing with anti-Semitism on the right and anti-Semitism on the left. This is one of those things that are hard for people to acknowledge. It's almost like it's easier to see the Jews will not replace us and the Marjorie Taylor Green of the, you know, Lewis, the Jewish space laser, right? That's very easy to call out. But what about on the extreme left when they equate Israel to Hamas? What about in the extreme left when they call when they call Israel a bloodthirsty country? This happens on both sides, and oddly enough, on the fringe right, fringe right, and the fringe left, the one thing that they have in common is anti-Semitism. So this is definitely something that I think we should look at as a society and be worried about. Um, there's no doubt that Trump allowed anti-Semitism in America to raise its head on the right in a way that we never saw before. Um, which was shocking for all of us. But again, it's coming from both sides. It's radical left, radical right, and radical Islam is where anti-Semitism is coming from the most. Um, and that's, that's, that's what unites them. But I, but I will never just call the right. I'm going to call the left because I'm a liberal that lives in Hollywood. You know what I mean? I'm going to call out the left and say, no, we need to look at ourselves as well. Not just on the right where it's convenient, but also on the left where it might not be. Might not be that easy to look at. We still have to. Because anti-Semitism on the right, okay. by the way, anti-Semitism on the, on the left right now, the majority of it is anti-Israel rhetoric. Anti-Semitism online, 69 to 84% of online anti-Semitism is anti-Israel rhetoric. It's the demonization of Israel. It's the double standard. It's the delegitimization of Israel. It's 
all these th- when you when you switch when you switch the world Jew to the world the word Zionist, it's anti-Semitism. It's just it's just kind of cloaked and masked differently. Okay, in conclusion, I think everyone on both sides of uh, all of these issues should read your book. So why don't you sell oh. your book to my audience a little bit? Tell them, <laughs> tell them what they're what they're in for if they read it. Wow. Um, uh, <laughs> such a great question. So yeah, it's a it's a book that tells the story of Israel and the Middle East in a way that's that's easy and fun and funny. It goes in depth, but not too deep. It tells the story of my family that was establishing, um, very involved in the establishment of the state of Israel. And it was endorsed by both Bill Maher, if you're on the left, and Ben Shapiro, if you're on the right, and Aaron Sorkin, and uh, Eric Weinstein, and Ray Kurzweil, and a lot of people that are thought leaders that I admire that were very gracious in reading the book and saying, yeah, we like it. It's good. So maybe your audience would like it too. Well, I think everyone should read it, and you're right, it is light. It's, as I tell people, it's not a hard read. Yes. In any event, no, I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known. I want to thank you so much for speaking with my audience. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sense. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.